Welcome to the Direct Examination Podcast. My name is Amber Fulmer. I'm Dane Phillips. And I'm Joseph Diaz. We are here today for our second official episode, and uh, we've gotten the question, and we will delve into this in more detail in the future, of why are we doing a podcast and who we are. Um, and we won't, wouldn't want to deprive you, the listeners, of that valuable information. So off the top, I'll just say my name is Joseph Bias. I'm the uh, head of the litigation department here at Vernison Bowling of Columbia. I do civil defense work. Uh, my background is um, first as a law clerk, then a public defender, and then into private practice. Um, and I'll let my colleagues introduce themselves before we get to our guests. But the purpose of us doing this podcast is, I guess, twofold. Uh, one, to talk, to have a conversation with the general public and kind of elucidate some of the things that lawyers do and uh, the people who uh, they hire. And then secondly, for us to learn about what other interesting lawyers do, um, and maybe some other lawyers can learn from other lawyers, if that makes sense. Um, that's me. What about y'all? Well, for my information, <laughs> I am Amber Fulmer. I work at the Moore Taylor Law Firm in West Columbia. I'm a graduate of USC, both for undergrad and law school. And I went straight into private practice. I do all domestic work, uh, which mainly focuses on divorce, but it does have some other unique situations. We um, do child custody, child support, modification of other agreements, also serve as a guardian ad litem for children. And additionally, I, um, goodness, I forgot the rest of it, <laughs> I work with, um, handle cases with DSS, and I also do cases for adoption and termination of parental rights. And I'm Dane Phillips. I'm a criminal defense attorney. also do some appellate work as well as professional license defense. I'm with Price Benowitz. I'm here in Columbia. Price Benowitz is headquartered in Washington, D.C. It's a regionally in D.C., Virginia, and Maryland, and I'm holding down the fort in South Carolina. Uh, but again, one of the reasons why we got together to, to start this podcast is to really focus on South Carolina lawyers. There's, a, as, as we discussed in the first episode, there's a lot of podcasts re regarding politics in South Carolina, and there's definitely a kind of a shroud of uh, unknown that the public has about South Carolina lawyers and what they do and kind of the, their roles and kind of the services they provide the public. And we'll hopefully through this podcast, we'll be able to unveil the curtain, show the, the man behind the curtain and, and, and so how, show you how the sausage is made or at least provide, uh, <laughs> provide, you, great analogy. provide, provide you with, uh, some information you didn't know about lawyers and hopefully try to bring back, uh, some more professionalism and a good name of lawyers in the community about how what they do and how they help people on a daily basis. Uh, and with that, our first, our, our second guest, our guest today is John Nichols. He is the disciplinary counsel of the Office of Disciplinary Counsel, uh, affectionately referred to as ODC. And, um, lawyers all know, fear <laughs> the Office of Disciplinary Counsel, and certainly there's a lot of mystique and uh, kind of. Uh, a lot of lawyers have different thoughts about ODC, and hopefully, uh, I've known John Nichols since 2005. I can definitely say on a personal level, I, I am very proud uh, to have him here as our guest and to have him as the disciplinary counsel leading that office because I know uh, he's certainly doing it in the best way possible. 
little known facts about John. He graduated <laughs> high school at the ripe old age of 16 years old. What took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> he, he finished college at Francis Marion University at 20 years old with a degree in mathematics. He, he did work for four years prior to deciding that law school was kind of a path that he wanted to pursue. Uh, then he went into private practice for a short stint before becoming a staff attorney at the Court of Appeals. And he worked there for a solid decade before going back into private practice and then ultimately starting a law firm with Marty Bluestein in 2000, uh, and which ultimately became Bluestein, Nichols, Thompson, and Delgado. Not too long after that, 2006, I believe, is the year. I was there when that happened. So uh, he was on the board of law examiners since 2003, which has ultimately led to his current job of how that came about, that transition from partner in a law firm uh, to being uh, the disciplinary counsel. Uh, he was on the Commission on Indigent Defense for the last five years, which as a former appellate defender and public defender, that certainly serves a very important role in, in providing indigent uh, poor individuals who can't afford uh, proper representation, a lawyer in South Carolina. They oversee essentially the funds for public defender's offices in the South Carolina. He did serve as outside counsel to the House and Senate Ethics Committees. He is the author and co-author of several highly used books by South Carolina lawyers. The Trial Handbook uh, for South Carolina Lawyers is kind of a cornerstone that uh, many lawyers refer to on evidence issues and other uh, legal issues as far as the law that's cited in it. He is a passionate and avid Gamecock fan. Uh, he <laughs> attends many USC sporting events. And so the one question I would have is, when do you sleep, John? Well, I, thank you, Dane, and, and, and Joseph and Amber. Thank y'all for having me here. Um, sleep's overrated. Come on. Um, <laughs> Only when you're dead, right? You that's right. for them. That's exactly right. Um, well, I appreciate it. So, uh, uh, fire away. Well, first thing, thank you for coming, and, and we really appreciate you being here. Uh, I, I wanted to talk before we get into the, uh, the rest of your resume. Were, did, were you on the board of bar examiner or the like the bar exam law examiners is that what you did i started in 2003 working with keith babcock i was his uh, associate bar examiner he was the bar examiner there were six bar examiners and six associates and uh, then keith left the board i became the member and dave rosting was my associate and then they added one more member to the team and i added shannon bober so the three of us tested I think I can tell it now since we've gone to the UDD. We tested, initially tested corporations and then later tested insurance. But yes, we, I was a bar examiner. I graded your bar exam. I'm floored right now. Um, <laughs> thank you for yeah, thanking me. <laughs> so, and when I, this podcast is taking a turn right now because now it's just me thanking you for a career. Basically. So John probably doesn't even want me to say this, but when I was a runner and it's, no right. ethical issues. ODC will not be calling, John, uh, so uh, they will not have to self-report. But uh, when I was a runner for his law firm, he was getting close to the deadline on a grading the bar exams, and he needed to get them over there by 5 o'clock, and I had my Ford Ranger there in college, and we loaded up however many lives, because <laughs> it's really somebody's right, life. Right, somebody's life. Uh, in, in it's these, the worst weight ever. <laughs> in these boxes and threw them in the back of my Ford Ranger, and I drove them from... Uh, the law firm over there on 1614 Taylor Street over to the South Carolina Bar Association building. And as I was driving that, I, you know, I was a junior or senior in college, 
and sitting there thinking how many people's livelihoods, <laughs> the blood, sweat, and tears that were sloshing around right. in the back of my truck. No pressure. Uh, no pressure at all. <laughs> I, that's all I kept. I had the worst fear that somebody was going to T-bone me and sure. just exams were going to fly in the air and it'd be a bad movie. Uh, but uh, luckily they got there safe and hopefully many many of them became boys. Actually, you took them to the spring. Did it? Yeah, he did. <laughs> now we found out he took him to the wrong place. It's great. So, so if you failed the uh, bar exam between the years of 2003 and 2006, <laughs> Dane Phillips is. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, so, John, I guess my question for you then, as somebody who used to grade these bar exams, we're going to have law students listening to this podcast. C- can you give out some quick tips? Some somebody who's you know read these tests i can and and here's the thing we are now in the second year of the uniform bar exam in south carolina and i'm still on the board um it was a it was a sea change in how the bar exam's done and, and i'm free to say these things um number one if you're going to sit down and take the ube which is the exact same test given in columbia south carolina is given in boise idaho is given in birmingham alabama on the same day um you can go to the national conference bar examiner's website and see actual exams that have been given in the past and get an idea of how to do the multi-state essay exam, which is the first three hours, the first day, I mean the first half, first day, and then the multi-state performance test, which is the second half of the first day, and then the old, the good old multi-state, which is the second day. Yes, they only have two days. We have three, but they That's only right. have two. Um, and you don't fail or pass the bar exam anymore. You're, you're actually taking the exam towards it, what's called a cut score. South Carolina selected 266, which is a common score among the jurisdictions. And um, the, probably the most common score is 270. Some scores are up to 280, uh, cut scores. Some are down to 260. Um, and the idea is not reciprocity. That's one of the misconceptions of the UBE. The idea is mobility. So let's say you're in South Carolina and you take the bar exam and you make 265 on it. So you can't be admitted in South Carolina. But you can take that score, Birmingham. You can take whatever course of study the Alabama bar creates and go through their character. There's always steps. Alabama. Just. There's always <laughs> Alabama. Thank goodness. And, um, and you can be admitted immediately. And that's important for people who have such a debt. And, you know, right. they're, they're mm-hmm. looking at, they, they got to wait six months to try to take the exam again. This gives them the opportunity to at least be admitted somewhere and perhaps get a job in the federal government or get a job somewhere that will maybe one day lead them back to South Carolina. Okay. So when we previously got our letters, after you wait and you see your name online, which is awful, you sit there all day and click the refresh button. Now when you, you get your letter that says when you pass later on, does it have that raw score in there? It does. Okay. And it doesn't say congratulations, you passed. It says you have achieved the score of 267 or whatever. And I'm not actually have not seen one of the letters, Amber, but I think that it lets you know what your score is. And then you'll know. And let's say you got 280 on the test. If you wanted to and you had the resources to, you could be admitted in 27 states, Guam, and the District of Columbia, and starting next year, North Carolina, and then the following year, Georgia. The scores are generally good in each jurisdiction for either 12 or 24 months. Um, and so, you know, if you felt like you, you didn't want to practice in South Carolina because you've been here six months, but you wanted to go to 
uh, New York and, mm -hmm. and practice. New York's cut score is uh, the same as ours. Uh, we followed New York on the cut score. We followed Alabama for the course of the study. Well, that was, I mean, certainly enlightening because all of us took a different bar exam and certainly uh, having that, that different, uh, I mean, they just took it. it literally, they're what? Last two, week? Yeah, last, last just week. a week. Um, two weeks ago. Yeah. Two weeks ago, removed from the hazing, because uh, that's what it is. It's really just the hazing of them, uh, you know, the paddling uh, to get in, to get into the, the fraternity of uh, being a lawyer. So the, the first topic we wanted to kind of discuss with you was your work at the Court of Appeals and working with Alex Sanders, who he himself is certainly a prominent, widely known and respected South Carolinian, and certainly working for an appellate court, there's a lot of things that most people don't know. There's kind of a shroud of secrecy or not secrecy, but a mystique with, with uh, the appellate court as well. Well, everybody thinks Alex Sanders was the first chief judge of the Court of Appeals, but that's not true. Uh, the Court of Appeals existed as, as a uh, court, a statutory court, back before the Civil War, and there were a number of uh, important decisions that came out, but there was one guy named uh, John Belton O'Neill, who was a very famous member of that court, who wrote a decision that was critical of slavery, back in the 1850s, and that uh, this is a short version, but that ultimately led to the abolishment of the Court of Appeals. It did was resurrected during Reconstruction, but then disappeared for 100 years. Then, in 1979, the legislature created the court. Five judges, John Martin, Senator John Martin, was the chief judge, and there were four other members, including Judge Gardner from Darlington. In a case called Riley v. Martin, all of them were disqualified except Judge Gardner. And they had, because they were in the legislature when the court was created. So in 1983, they recreated the court on September 15, 1983. They launched it, and it was Alex Sanders, um, Curtis Shaw, uh, Jack Gardner, Curtis Shaw, Randy Bell, uh, Jasper Kerrigan, and Burke Goolsby. Judge Sanders taught trial ad at the law school when I took his course, which is how I met him. And then I asked how I become a staff attorney, and I interviewed. They said, well, you don't have an opening. We'll keep your resume on file. And they did. And they <laughs> offered me a job in, in May of, of uh, gosh, 1986. And I, uh, it, I ended up taking that job and working there. And while I was there, I was a, chief, I was a staff attorney until 93 and became chief staff attorney through 96. And I also got to clerk with Judge Sanders for a while, which was fun. Uh, I got to clerk with Judge Bell, which was different, and I got to clerk with Judge Littlejohn, who's a retired Chief Justice who sat with us as a uh, acting judge. So I didn't realize he, that Littlejohn came back and then sat as a retired judge. He, he did, and, and uh, so it was just three different kinds of things. You know, for Judge Sanders, uh, for Judge Bell, I'd have to go figure out what the dooms of Canute were and try to shepherdize English cases. For Judge Sanders, I'd have to go get a copy of the Boy Scout Man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, their opinions are notorious. I mean, it's right. not like most of appellate opinions that you have to defend. So it was, uh, it was fascinating. It was, at, it was at that time that Judge Sanders came to me and asked me to help him with the trial handbook. And so I became involved in the first edition with Judge Deborah Neves, who was not a judge at the time, but uh, she and Judge Sanders and I wrote the first iteration. And then thereafter, I've just been working with Judge Sanders which amounts to me sending him the manuscript and saying, let me know if there's anything wrong. <laughs> I, I right. So. so, you obviously, you're, 
not to boost your ego too much, but that trial handbook is kind of, you know, it's been used by hundreds, maybe thousands of attorneys in South Carolina. Is there a, I guess, from your experience, both sitting behind the bench as a clerk and being in front of it, are there any tips that you can give for practicing lawyers that maybe either can stick out in the book or, you know, something that maybe you can't put down in the book but would help? Well, one thing I could say, probably something you heard first day of law school, and that's being prepared. But having said that, you can't be prepared for everything. Uh, those of you, I mean, we've all tried cases. Um, one of the last things I did in private practice with blue team was try a murder case with Delgado last fall. Um, so we've all tried cases, and you feel you can get as prepared as you can be, but you can't be completely prepared. Something's going to come up. The idea behind the trial handbook, it's supposed to give you something that will um, uh, allow you to address something unexpected and at least have that, you know, a, a minimal authority for something or a new idea for something. And I would ask anybody listening to this, if you see something wrong, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, working at the Court of Appeals and with the appellate court, is there something that you've learned that you think the other lawyers, not just the public, but mainly other lawyers, you know, because there is this, myself have working at appellate defense and knowing uh, how the appellate courts work uh, on the inside and out, I, people just, when they hear the word appellate court, they freak out. I mean, they just have this weird uh, kind of fear, just pure fear about the appellate courts. Uh, is there something that you've learned as being a staff attorney that you would want uh, your fellow lawyers to know not to be afraid of the appellate court, that it's nothing to be afraid of? <laughs> yeah, and I would say this. I would say this not only from being a staff attorney but having argued a bunch of cases at both the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. You're, this is an opportunity for you to go talk with either three or five very smart people who are very prepared and who are very interested in your case. It shouldn't be an intimidating experience. It ought to be, you ought to embrace the experience. Um, I always, uh, the rules can change recently, but the rule required you to give background information in any oral argument. I always violated that rule unabashedly. I would always start off by saying, hi, I'm John Nichols. I'm here with Blake Hewitt. We represent John Doe. I'd like to talk about these three things. And I go right to them Absolutely. because my goal was to always get, try to get the first question within the first minute. Because if I don't, they don't give me questions, I don't know what may be concerning them or what they may be trying to convince one other member uh, about. And so once I get that question, we're off to the races and we're having a conversation about my case. The kind of main thing is, I would add two other things. Number one, when I was at the Court of Appeals for 10 years, I probably worked on about 1,000 cases, 100 cases a year. When I, in practice, I probably prepared, briefed, and argued 120 or 30 cases at the Court of Appeals and about 80, 70 to 80 cases at the Supreme Court, somewhere in there. Um, I did not do a single appeal without getting my rule book out. And, and y'all may think that that is silly and that is crazy and that I'm lying, but I'm telling you, there was no reason for me to try to remember it and do it out because they have the rules and the rules are very easy to, to follow. Uh, so I would do that. The other thing is call your friends. Call someone. Say, I got this weird situation. 
what ideas do you have? Call uh, Whitney Harrison, Blake Hewitt, <laughs> or, or um, call Mitch Brown, or Matt Bowden. Call these folks. They will take your call. They will talk to you, talk with you. They're not involved in the case. They'll talk with you about it. If you have a referral, call Dane Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> call Dane Phillips. Who Turn I've off seen, that business, buddy. <laughs> I've seen Dane Phillips argue a case at the Supreme Court. He does it spectacularly well. And, John, before we even started this, I know you and I were talking, and I just want to thank you because you came and presented at a continuing legal education seminar on ICWA, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act, and I think I had just casually met you, and I was able to call you with a question, so thank you for you're being welcome. for being open to that. So even John, you take your call if you have a question. <laughs> yeah, Very uh, helpful. Yeah, ICWA, that was quite an experience. That was the uh, Indian Child Welfare case involving the baby Veronica case, which was a pretty important case, an interesting case, a U.S. Supreme Court case. Uh, I uh, have the distinction of losing Stephen Breyer, uh, but gaining uh, Antonin Scalia. So I had Scalia <laughs> and Sotomayor on the same side of the case. And Sotomayor wrote me a wonderful dissent. I lost the case. And Scalia write, wrote a four-paragraph dissent that um, chokes me up when I read it uh, because he boiled the essence of that case in four paragraphs. Mm -hmm. um, Justice Alito's uh, majority We'll send it to him. I was going to say, we'll email him the link. <laughs> well, and going back to what you said about opening up the rule book for every time, I can attest that John is not exaggerating on that <laughs> because as someone who was a runner and then a law clerk yeah. in his law firm, there was many times I stepped into his office and he was uh, providing me with a, you know, a teachable moment, and he made sure to pull out the rule book and showed me specifically where it is in the book and, and how to, I mean, he has started the book and worked your way out. Yeah. That is his philosophy, and I would dare say if there's young lawyers or uh, law students, you need to adopt that practice from day one. That's great advice. Well, John, so we started at the Court of Appeals, then we went into private practice, and now you're at ODC. For those of you that aren't aware of what that yeah. is, the non-lawyers is the Office of Disciplinary Counsel. So, for, for those people who can only listen to us, the uh, room just suddenly went down. Our faces went pale. <laughs> John, can you tell um, for maybe the non-lawyers who don't fear uh, you what ODC <laughs> is and what um, what kind of ODC does for the public? Right. We. Uh, I, I am the disciplinary counsel. I'm appointed by the court. Uh, three members can remove me. So as long as I keep three happy, I'm, I've got a job. And one of them's already told me he's on the fence. But in any event, he was a classmate of mine. So. Um, the Office of Disciplinary Counsel was created as an arm of the Supreme Court. Uh, the Disciplinary Counsel is the one responsible for managing the office, and that's, that's me currently. It was Lee Cagiola up until uh, the first of this year. There are nine public lawyers, including me. Uh, I have a deputy, Carrie Markle, who lived for a while in Colorado and, and came back to South Carolina. So she is my deputy. Uh, and then there are seven other lawyers. We take complaints. Uh, we take several hundred complaints a week. Really? Uh, involving lawyers or judges. Um, yes. I think 
Dane just got whiplash. Well, <laughs> well and, and let me tell you about that. We have three full-time, I mean, we have three staff members, two full-time investigators. We work somewhat with the Commission on Lawyer Conduct, although they are, we have a separation at the point in time that we, we commence, we send out a notice and all that because we're the prosecutors and they're the, uh, or the masters, the gatherers of the evidence and reporting it to the Supreme Court. Once a, uh, most of the reports get dismissed, many of them without the lawyer ever knowing we got. A lot of them are prisoners who are mad. They find a way to complain because it's the lawyer's fault that they robbed that 7-Eleven and ended up getting convicted. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, but, and we get a lot of folks who just don't understand. They don't understand the system. So they think that their lawyer did something wrong and, or did, and so they complain. Uh, the same with judges. Uh, most of the complaints we get about judges are dismissed. They're either dismissed by my office without even, because that there's no allegation of a violation of the rules of professional conduct or the rules for lawyer disciplinary enforcement. Um, when we get a case, though, we look at the complaint, and if true, we uh, there'd be a violation, we have to open it. So it's sort of a 12B6 uh, type standard. Then when we begin our uh, investigation, we send out a notice, get a response, and make a decision then, can we prove this case by clear and convincing, which is our standard that we will carry the rest of the way. If we can't, there are some things we might suggest to the lawyer. It, even if we can, we but we don't think it it really needs to go into the discipline mill, we may work out a letter of caution, some other type of agreement uh, for discipline. Most of the cases that have some meat on the bones get decided by an agreement for discipline with the lawyer. Um, those agreements are all approved by the commission and approved by the Supreme Court. Well, if the Supreme Court doesn't approve it, then we have to go to formal charges or try to work out an agreement with their approval. We go to formal charges tried before the commission. Um, it's a trial. It's a non-jury trial, <laughs> you know, but it is a trial. Sometimes we only try sanctions. Sometimes we try both liability and sanctions. Um, witnesses. Uh, we have a, an exchange of information. It's limited discovery. Um, we have subpoena power so you can bring witnesses in. Um, and the commission's composed of lawyers and non there are a couple of citizens on there. And that's true of the lawyer commission and the judicial commission. Um, there are judges on the judicial commission and there are non-lawyers on the judicial commission. Um, they make a recommendation to the court, but at the end of the day, it's just up to the court. Um, the, we don't brief our cases unless somebody takes an exception to the report and we brief. Or if the court, I asked the court recently um, to well, the law, a lawyer was attempting to be readmitted and requested the opportunity, and we briefed a particular issue under the rules. It's fascinating. Um, so. Did, so what makes someone want to get into the business of, for lack of a better phrase, policing other lawyers? Sure. Uh, well, the Chief Justice asked me to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, guess you can't say no. He's, he's very persuasive. Uh, he's, I've known Chief Justice Beatty since he was a circuit judge. Pleasure of 
really kind of getting to know him. Uh, and when he asked me to do this, uh, there are a lot of reasons why I decided to do it. Uh, uh, one of them is that I've been defending lawyers and judges over there for about 15 years. I've had a few cases here and there early on, and then it became very regular. Uh, and I felt like I understood the procedure, at least from the defense side, but I wanted to kind of get an idea of what it was like. I also had some ideas about ways that office can operate better, which I've discussed with the chief. Um, we'll see if we can get it done. Um, some of them are lawyer friendly. Uh, by that I mean the target of the complaint lawyer friendly. Some of them are complainant friendly. Um, I think it's important. Let me say this. I think the existence of the Office of Disciplinary Counsel makes your job possible. Because so long as the public has faith that there's somebody policing the lawyer, right. then I think you can keep moving on. And I'll add this, too. Anybody with a stamp can make a complaint. We, you know, seriously. It, now, the Rule 19 says that if we receive it from whatever source, but we have a policy of requiring complaints to be made in writing. And the reason is I want somebody to commit to it in writing, and that's been Henry Richardson's policy, who was a predecessor of mine, and Lee Caggiola followed him, and, and we're going to continue that policy. Uh, also, when I send a notice to a lawyer in one of those personal and confidential letters, <laughs> letters sure. they're personal, um, <laughs> They, they, they get to see exactly what this person is complaining about. And that gives them the opportunity to respond. Uh, Dane will tell you, I'm a big due process guy. Notice. We need to notice an opportunity. Notice an opportunity to be heard. <laughs> so, um, so I have uh, a number of things that I've been discussing with both Carrie Markle, my, my deputy, with Debbie McCallum, who is counsel for the commission, and Mr. Chief. His lawyer, Don Presumble, uh, that you know, there are some problems there, but they didn't pop up overnight, sure. and it's going to take a, a while. But we are everybody's on mission, and we are committed to uh, dealing with uh, with things. Hopefully, uh, getting that that office uh, moving in a direction I think is going to be really good, and and really the alternative. On the flip side would be like the other professional organizations where you have LLR right. and those are non-lawyers who don't understand the legal community the legal issues that are before the you know that that happen in everyday life so it's certainly I think from a lawyer's perspective it's better to have lawyers who understand that process with the commission and then the overview of the Supreme Court policing lawyers versus an outside group of non-lawyers who wouldn't truly understand the practice of law and kind of the specific nuances that occur uh, while practicing law. Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent point, Dane. And, and, you know, in South Carolina, the Supreme Court is the ultimate decider on lawyer discipline. My job is to get them the best information so that they can make the best decision. And by the best decision, I mean a decision that won't be hurtful to the lawyer but also won't be hurtful to the complainant or the system. Discipline's not intended to be uh, punishment. I know. 
that sounds weird, but the Supreme Court has said that. The primary goal is protecting the public. Um, we have embraced, by the way, a goal of protecting the lawyers in the sense of, of this. We were all required to take a civility oath. Mm -hmm. I had to take that, that civility oath. We were also all required to get one hour of substance abuse mental health CLE every three years. That's right. And um, and so, and by the way, and the bar supports that with the Above the Bar program, which if you haven't seen that on their website, I recommend everybody go. One of the member benefits that each of us have is five free hours of counseling a year that you can get through Robert Turnbull's office. So, um, and it's totally anonymous. Seriously, Robert gets an invoice with a number. He doesn't know who. Is that, that's the lawyers helping lawyers? Um... Robert Turnbull's lawyers helping lawyers. Okay. This program is separate and apart. And it's available awesome. on the bar's website on their above the bar. And I think that's very crucial. We even stop and make make sure that that even gets said five times because right. there's an epidemic of lawyer suicide uh, and mental health and depression and yeah. substance abuse. So knowing that we have part as part of being a member of the South Carolina Bar Association that we have those five hours, definitely want to make sure the lawyers yeah, listening know that. Totally available. And um, it's anonymous and free. It is. Um, there, there's also one other thing, Rule 428, which is an end rule, which says it used to be called the Call 5 rule, and now it's called the Call uh, D. Ross rule. Uh, David Ross, who's the new executive director of the bar. Uh, it allows you, if you believe that you have noticed cognitive impairment in either a lawyer or a judge, to call the executive director, who will then take that burden off of you and reach out to that person. Oh, that's good. What would you say are some common mistakes or the complaints that you've gotten at ODC or just any tips you might have for new lawyers starting out, some definite things you want to watch out for and avoid? Probably the main thing, and this has always been the case, is communication. Uh, if, you, if somebody calls you, and if they're calling every day, and a lot of domestic, uh, domestic clients do that, Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> and then they don't understand why they get billed point one minute, you know, an hour or, or, you know, whatever weight. I didn't know. Um, two things. Return the call or have someone in the staff return the call. And that takes care of your communication problem. Most the other way to take care of it is document the file. Document, document. Because as much as we love our clients, some of them lie. Y'all may not know that. This is shocking. <laughs> I know it is. It's shocking. You're winning, sir. Um, All of mine are angels. Yes. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. And your best defense against a complaint is a well-documented file. Uh, when I was a lawyer defending these cases, and somebody would call and say, hey, I got one of those personal confidential letters. Can I get your help? And I'd say, fine, send me your file, and I need all of your notes. When I would get a well-documented file, I'd say, this is a piece of cake. We can, we can respond to this, and everything will go away. When I would get a file that just had little handwritten notes on sticky notes and all, I'd say, okay, we got to spend some time on this. Um, if you can't return the call because you're in the trial or you're on vacation or your spouse is in the hospital or whatever, have someone in your office return that call. Um, the, the other thing that I would really want folks to do, if you, do, if you have a trust account and you deal with other people's property and money, please, 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 Study Rule 417. Rule 417 is the trust account rule. The, you, you should be doing monthly reconciliation, which is a four-part step, not the old three-part thing from your bank account.
account with a four-part step that the Supreme Court will require if you ever have an NSF. If you get one NSF, that's not a problem. That is not a problem. But if you get several and there's, a, I see, we see that it's gone on for a couple of months, then the problem is that you weren't doing your monthly reconciliation, which would have prevented the second one. If somebody steals from you, if a, if a trusted employee steals from you, and it's always Aunt Marge's best friend who, uh, who's worked for you for 18 years and brought you cookies and pie, but she's been stealing over the year. If they steal from you for one month, that's not a violation of the rules. If they steal from you for two months, there's a problem because you weren't doing your reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole host of problems coming your way. It may mean a letter of caution and you've got to go to trust account school and you got to you know, report this person and make sure everybody's made whole. I don't know what it would mean. We'd have to look at any particular case. But it's not the end of the world. And let me add that because I know we're probably running low on time. If you get one of these letters, don't panic. Don't pick up the phone and cuss out the client and make it worse. <laughs> don't write that poison pill email that you that you want to send. You can write it, but you know there's a delete key. Yeah, just don't, yeah, send, don't it, right. send it. There is a delete key. Vent your spleen all you want, but hit that delete key. Um, one of the prior disciplinary counsel who worked in the office, Barbara Seymour, uh, uh, introduced me to a book called Send, S-E-N-D, and it's about the send key. The send key can get you in more trouble than anything else. Use the delete key, folks. Um, <laughs> the reply all can. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a different too. issue, but uh, it can. <laughs> John, here at the uh, Direct Examination Podcast, we end with all of our guests with cross-examination and I know you wrote the book on trials, but these are so these won't actually be leading questions. But if you could bear with us, so we each have one for you. Uh, mine would be: uh, Why did you want to become a lawyer in the first place? Uh, it's that's very interesting. Um, I didn't. Um, I got a math degree, so you say, "Why would a math guy go to, go to law school?" Well, you know, math has a lot of logic and you know that kind of stuff. And I actually I have more hours in philosophy and religion than I did in mathematics. So uh, go figure. Um, I uh, got a job with the Department of Social Services right out of law, right out of undergrad, and part of the effort was the Child Protective Services Investigator. It's the hardest job I've ever had in my life. And but one of the things it did was it introduced me to the Family Court, the General Court of General Sessions, and to some degree common pleas. And I was able to watch lawyers and judges. And I actually one day just thought I can do that. And I went to LSAT and cashed in my retirement and went to law school. Um, so awesome. it was just that experience. What would you say is your most memorable case or issue that you have worked on as a lawyer? Well, certainly the baby Veronica case because of the national um, headlines, but I am going to pick a different case. Um, that, uh, I, I was, I'm going to grab two. Okay, I know this is violating the, the thing because you're asking me to pick apples and oranges here. Uh, the marriage equality case, the Braddock's v. Haley case, which was a, uh, such an important case because of my clients who I love, I still love to this day, um, and the important issue and impact. But the other was a case called State versus Lane. Um, Terry Tindall was facing 25 years in, in prison, a $250,000 fine uh, through her being for neg 
car that was entrusted to someone. It's, it's a long story. But at the end of the day, I was able to persist with that case, and the Supreme Court reversed it. And today, in uh, August or September, he was they reversed it in August of 2010, and on September 8, 2010, he walked out of prison, um, a free man. And uh, thereafter, on September 8, which I told him was his new birthday, he would send, he would send me cards or he would send me flowers. Or... So in, to close the cross-examination section, I think this is definitely a very important question for you now that you're with the ODC. What advice would you give a new or young lawyer uh, that's about to embark, embark on this practice of law, this journey? I would, I would advise them to know, he or she to know that she's not alone. He's not alone. Um, everyone started somewhere. And uh, I know that I am the product of a lot of people who had faith in me and helped me and did things for me. And I, so I always spent my career trying to pay that forward. That ledger will never be balanced. I have, all, I have always received more than I ever gave. But understand that there are people out there. If you have trouble, you're not expected to know everything. And, you know, uh, sometimes I, my, my mentor, one of my mentors was Ken Suggs, and he introduced me to another mentor, Harry Filer, uh, who, who's a big-time lawyer from Detroit. And Harry always said, it's not what the court said last time, it's what the court said next time. So even though you think you know everything, about your case, talk it over with your colleagues. Um, also, if you feel like you're getting overwhelmed, don't let things fester. Don't let things get um, sort of get out of control. Reach out to a friend. It's not. Don't be embarrassed by the fact that something got away. I mean, good Lord, that many times whenever I pick up the phone and say, I don't know how I'm gonna get all this done, and, and Blake would talk me off the ledge. Um, but but that's what I would tell you. You're in a community. The legal community is a community. Um, there are some folks in there that you don't like and you won't deal with. Them. We know who they are. But for the most part, I think everybody runs towards the same finish line. And the other thing is judges aren't out there to be mean to you. Um, they'll help you when they can. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're umpires. They're, they're supposed to call balls and strikes. But they're also... Um, Thank you so much, John. Like I said, it's, a, it's certainly, uh, for me, a, a, I'm very proud to have you here as somebody that's worked for you and can certainly say that he's he's everything they say he is. <laughs> Which, <laughs> in this case, is a good thing. It's a great thing. When you talk about uh, the ledger will never be rebalanced, you've helped me in my career through advice, support, vouching, and in me throughout this process. So again, I can't, I can't thank you enough. And uh, certainly, just glad that you took the time, at, you know, to be here with us. Thanks, John. Now remember, you can follow us at at SC Law Pod on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow me at Joseph P. Bias on Twitter. You can follow Dane at SC Crim Lawyer. And now you can even follow Amber at at Red. Judicata on Twitter. Y'all, that was an undertaking, so I hope you really appreciate it. <laughs> 45 minutes of somebody walking me through there, on Twitter. There was a committee that came up with the name, yes. uh, but we finally got Amber on Twitter. So when you hear this episode, like it, share it, 
give it to your friends, give it to your uh, students, and let us know who needs to be on this podcast, who you want to hear from, and what questions or topics you want us to cover. And they can do that by emailing us at the Direct Examination Podcast at gmail.com. Direct Examination Podcast at gmail.com. That's all. Of course, all. you can like our Facebook page as well, and you'll find all the information. You'll you find need. everything you exactly. need there. <laughs> so, for Dane, for Amber, and for our guest, John Nichols, this is Joseph Bias, and we will see y'all next week. Y'all have a good one. Thank you. <laughs>